On this week's 51%, the author of a book about baseball's leading lady hopes girls read the story. I love baseball. I think I would maybe want to do this, but I don't know that it's possible. I want her to read this, and I want her to know that it 100% is possible. And find out why storyteller Jerry Burns is talking turkey long after Thanksgiving. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball game. In her new book, Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues, Andrea Williams tells the story of the woman at the center of the black baseball world. Manley was the elegant yet gutsy owner and co-manager of the Newark Eagles, a team she cultivated into a powerhouse. Yet with calls for integration gaining steam, so did the threat of losing all that she had built. Williams details the rise and fall of Negro Leagues baseball, shedding light on an important yet little-known part of black and American history. Effa Manley is the first and only woman inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. She was inducted um, because of her role in, in Negro League's history. She and her husband, Abe, owned the Newark Eagles in the Negro National League in the 30s and 40s, and she was responsible really for, for all of the day-to-day operations of the team. So that meant negotiating with players for their contracts. It meant buying equipment, uniforms, baseballs. It meant scheduling games. It meant arranging um, for, for PR, reaching out to, to local members of the media to talk about what was happening with the team. She did all of those things and also uh, played a really important role in, in the operations of the entire Negro National League. Her husband was officially the treasurer of the organization, but but Effa kind of fulfilled those duties as well and generally was just a leader within the organization, particularly as we come up to the point of integration where Jackie Robinson is signed by Branch Rickey and becomes a member of the previously all-white Brooklyn Dodgers. Ethel was really there all along advocating on behalf of the Negro Leagues. And, you know, later on, um, a couple years after Jackie Robinson signing, was, was influential in setting a precedent so that owners of black baseball teams would actually be compensated for their black players if they were signed by, um, by a white team in Major League Baseball. Now you, um, it's not not a far cry for you to write a book about this because of your your role with the museum, right? Yeah, so I I studied sport management at Georgia Southern University, and once I graduated, ended up getting a job at the Negro League Baseball Museum in marketing and development, but was always a really, really big baseball fan. Um, To be honest, didn't really know a lot about the Negro Leagues before I got there and took on this position, so... It was really exciting every day learning something new, learning about, you know, another person, another story that had, you know, been lost to time that hadn't gotten its proper due. And Effa certainly fit into that category. I, I learned about her story my very first day on the job when um, when I was given a tour by Bob Kendrick, who is currently the president of the museum, and I was just blown away. Um, I, I think, you know, I tell people that we would be blown away by Effa Manley if she was around now and doing what she did then, if she was doing it in 2021, it would be a big deal. 
but the fact that she did it in the 30s and 40s considering, you know, what it was like for black people and what it was like for women. So what that meant to be black and a woman. Um, and she, yeah, she was just incredible. I was, you know, trying to see ahead towards, you know, my potential career in a baseball front office. And here was this woman who had done all of the things, you know, during during an era when that was really, really unheard of, even even more unheard of than, than now. Why was she the only woman um, inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame? I mean, what to what do you owe that? What do you think's the case there? I think it really speaks to the significance of the Negro Leagues and the fact that because of of the structure in black baseball, yes, the, the fact that we had Negro Leagues was born of, you know, this really ugly time in our history with Jim Crow and segregation, but it birthed something really beautiful in that we had these black-owned teams and these really self-sufficient leagues that were welcoming to, you know, someone like Effa Manley who could come in, who could not just own a team, because there have been women, you know, in black baseball and in white baseball who had owned teams before Effa, but Effa was able to come in and take on a real leadership role, again, both with her team and with the league overall. That only happens because of the Negro Leagues. Effa could have been the same person during the same era you know, if she had enough access to capital and was able to own a team in Major League Baseball, all other things could be true, but I don't believe that she would have been able to build this Hall of Fame-worthy career because Major League Baseball just was not that open to women having as active a role in baseball operations as Effa was. And and when we lose the Negro Leagues, which we lost the Negro Leagues because of integration, because now once we've got Jackie playing for the Dodgers, playing in Major League Baseball. Now, all of a sudden, the black fans want to go see Jackie and other players who have, black players who have made the jump. Now, the, the black press is more interested in covering Jackie and those other black players than they are the Negro League. So, essentially, the Negro Leagues are dead in the water pretty quickly after integration. Well, we don't get to see if there would be another EFA, right? We don't – We the, the Negro Leagues that existed, these thriving organizations, these teams – are no longer around to cultivate the next generation of female talent who can walk into a boardroom and run a team the way Effa did. And again, when we look at integration, while they pick black players, while they open the door to some black players, they didn't open the door to any black executives. And if we look at Major League Baseball's track record, here we are, you know, Kim Ang was recently brought on by the Miami Marlins to be their general manager. She is the first woman in Major League Baseball to hold that position. She didn't get that till 2020. So, um, yeah, I really, I really think it speaks to, to the significance, to the importance of um, really the innovation that, that was present throughout the Negro Leagues. And I'm glad you brought up Kim Ang because I was going to ask you about her and what Effa might think of her. Yeah, I think I think Ethel would say that, you know, she was really excited for her and proud of her and knew that she would do a great job. I mean, we all know she's going to do a great job because she's been in baseball forever. You know, when I was when I was at Georgia Southern and saying that I wanted to go into a front office, I mean, she was the assistant GM for the Yankees then. And that was like, you know, I graduated undergrad in 2004. So here we are. It took all this time for her to get there. And I think Effa, while she would be excited for her for this position because it is historical, um, I think she would say, she would absolutely say, yes, what took you people so long (laughs) 
and I think she would say, you know, these are these are the kinds of things that I that I try to avoid as we look back at integration. You know, the way Ethel fought not a, against integration, not against the idea of black players playing alongside white players on the same team, but against integration in the way that that it happened here, the way that Branch Ricky and so many others decided that it would happen, which is again that they would cherry pick, you know, pick a few black players and bring them in, but, you know, pay little regard or really no regard for the organizations from whence they came, you know, this this idea that we can sign Jackie Robinson without ever even having a conversation with the Kansas City Monarchs, which is the team that he played on. All of that was what Ethel was fighting against because she knew that if, if, if we did integration in this way that did not respect the entity of the Negro Leagues, of, of black baseball, then – they would crumble, and and they did. And and when we see that, when we see that they that they completely fall apart, that these teams and leagues no longer exist, again, it doesn't allow for a space for someone like a Kim Ng to come along well before 2020. And then Major League Baseball, right, recently recently announced they're elevating the Negro Leagues to Major League status. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's interesting because when the announcement came out, there was a lot of, you know, there there were some differing opinions about, you know, whether it mattered, whether it was necessary. Um, I am of the mind, particularly in having, you know, spent so much time in, in Negro Leagues history doing this research and really understanding what was at stake in the mid-40s as, as integration became imminent. And I think it's important. I really do. I think it's. I think it matters that Major League Baseball made this announcement because, again, if we go back to those moments when Branch Rickey is signing Jackie Robinson, when you know we've got that initial push for black players to play in Major League Baseball, and then we've got the fallout on the side of the Negro Leagues where these teams and these leagues collapse pretty quickly. That is all because at that time, Major League Baseball didn't consider the Negro Leagues of Major League status. You know, Branch Rickey justifies not honoring the contracts that that Jackie Robinson and Don Newcomb and Roy Campanella already had because in his mind, the Negro Leagues weren't on the same level as Major League Baseball. So we can't go back in time. We can't, we can't, you know, make this, make this announcement retroactive and demand that, you know, Happy Chandler hold Branch Rickey accountable and pay for these contracts or, deal more fairly with the Negro Leagues, perhaps, you know, keep keep the teams and leagues intact and maybe set them up as minor league, official minor league affiliates of Major League Baseball. We can't go backward and do that, but it does matter now because now when we say that, yes, those teams, those leagues were of Major League status, well, now, you know, in the case of EFA, now we're not just saying that here's this woman who run this team that happened to win, you know, this this championship you know, in 1946, well, now here's a woman who ran a championship team that was on major league level, right? Now she is the same as Branch Rickey, right? When we when we talk about history, their names sit alongside of each other. Um, and that matters. That matters when we talk about major league baseball now and the work it needs to do to get more black people in those front offices, to get more black people um, in ownership positions. It matters when we talk about the next generation of black people. I always say, you know, we it's not a stretch for us or even for white people to consider us, you know, occupying a space on the field, you know, because, you know, we can run fast and, and hit far and throw hard. Like, that is that is 
within within our realm of imagination. But now when we understand really what we were accomplishing on the business side of things in the 20s and 30s and 40s, well, what does that mean as we look towards the future now? Now it's not a stretch for, for me or for my 13-year-old daughter to say, well, you know what, I want to run a baseball team. Because look what Effa did in the 30s and 40s. It matters now that that we don't just talk about what happened you know, back then, but that we that we understand the level um, at which you know all of these people, not just the players, but the executives, were operating at in the 30s and 40s, especially considering just the 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 era um, and how difficult it was just for Black people in general. Sure, and you know, in the case in the case of Effa and and other women like like Kim Ang, I mean, you've got to see it to be it, right? So when girls are looking at this, and you heard this with Kamala Harris, right, becoming vice yep. president, I mean, you've got to see it, or else it's not real. And so, kind of in that in that vein, I wanted to know who you hope will read this book and what you hope they'll take away. Yeah, I want everybody to read the book. I know that's like all authors. I think we would all say, please, everybody, like. I bled on the page for two years, like everybody read the book. But, um, but yeah, I do. I, I want kids to read this. I really, if I had to like narrow it down and pick the one, you know, person, it would be the black girl who, you know, doesn't, hasn't seen herself in these positions before, who looks at maybe Major League Baseball and says, it's pretty white. I mean, on the field, it's pretty white. You know, I'm not seeing a lot of women. You know, Kim Ang just got to this position in 2020. Where are the black women in leadership positions? I don't know. I love baseball. I think I would maybe want to do this, but I don't know that it's possible. I want her to read this, and I want her to know that it 100% is possible. I want her to see Effa's example and know that in route to whatever your your end goal is, whatever your dreams are, as you pursue them, sometimes you might have to break the rules. Sometimes you might have to speak up and say things that cause jaws to drop and, you know, eyes to turn and all those things. But in the end, if you are fighting for the right thing, if you are on the right side of history, then in the end, we always win. Thank you so much, Andrea. I mean, I can tell your passion, uh, and uh, it's just so great. I, I, some of the times I speak with authors, and I just wish that their books would be required reading material in certain schools, you know, because yeah, uh, it, it's so important. It is historical, and it should be required reading um, because they need to know these people existed. I didn't know. You know, um, I'm way past school yes. age, so I'm, I'm I, really— I hear you. Uh, I mean, that is—the the end goal is that it is, you know, kind of like— like Disney movies, right? Like I've got four kids and Disney creates movies for kids, but as an adult, you get drawn in and you learn something from it. So that is the ultimate goal with this book. I want kids to pick it up. You know, they get an assignment in school and then they need to write a, a paper about someone or they need to learn about, you know, some period in history. And here's a supplemental resource that can help them get further into the history. All of those things I want to happen but I think there's a lot that adults can glean from this, too. And I would love to see parents reading this alongside of or with their kids.
I had one last question, if you'll indulge me, and I because you you referenced sure. it throughout the conversation, and I know that you write about them as well. But is there any one particular male who was helpful in getting Effa to where she is? I'm not suggesting like she didn't uh, didn't do it herself or have the talent on her own. I don't mean to say that at all. But you know, our interactions with other people sometimes make or break us, and I'm just wondering who was very instrumental, if not just for her, but for opening those doors, so to speak. Yeah. Essa, in in her memoir, uh, which was, it was kind of part memoir, part black baseball history that she wrote um, shortly before she passed away, she mentioned Rube Foster. Rube Foster started the first um, successful Negro National League um, in, in 1920. It was the first league that lasted longer than, you know, maybe a month or something like that. But he launched it in 1920 in Kansas City, and he really had that initial vision and understood that it would take organization in order to move black baseball to the next level. He also understood what was possible in in terms of, of, of baseball as this business, as, as this lucrative organization, right? Like, so it, it's hard, I think, for people when I talk to kids to understand that Yes, sports are a multi-billion dollar industry right now, but it wasn't always like that. Like there was an early period where it was, you know, we were getting this off the ground and what, how do we monetize this thing? How, what is, what is the money making potential in that? And so Rube Foster was there in the early days of, of baseball as a business. He started out as a player, was one of the best pitchers in his time and then later moved into a management role and then ultimately an executive role and owned and owned a team out of Chicago. But he really had the vision. He had the vision. He he understood that black baseball could could be a potential platform for so many things. It was yes, a way to give black people an opportunity to play baseball professionally when they were shut out of the white major leagues, but it was also a way to get black managers on the field and black executives in the office and to make money that could go back into the black community. And so if there was anybody whose footsteps Effa followed, I think it would be rude for sure. That was author and journalist Andrea Williams talking about her book, Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues. It is published by Roaring Brook Press. Williams worked in marketing and development for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in her hometown of Kansas City, Missouri, before turning to writing full-time. So the song, the famous Take Me Out to the Ball Game? Well, one of the 1908 tunes writers is Jack Norwith, and the song is an ode to his girlfriend, suffragist and vaudeville actress Trixie Fraganza. There are a few verses that you probably have not heard at the stadium, like this one in part. Katie, Katie saw all the games, knew the players by their first names, told the umpire he was wrong all along. Good and strong. When the score was just two to two, Katie Casey knew what to do. Just to cheer up the boys she knew, she made the gang sing this song. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. At the beginning of March, rapper and actor Ice Cube announced an updated version of Contract with Black America that outlines long-standing specific issues facing black American women and the sports industry, with a set of tactical solutions, along with additional updates throughout the contract. The original contract was announced this past summer and spurred a string of political conversations around racial and economic equality in America. 
Contract with Black America now includes an additional section dedicated to highlighting the many concerns facing Black American women. Under the Sports Industry Economic Development Plan, the contract outlines solutions to the systemic racism engulfing sports today. And now Dr. Jerry Burns talks turkey. One late summer day, a friend from Pennsylvania passed through on his way to deliver his daughter to college in the Capital District, so he stopped for a socially distant visit. We hung in the yard for a bit, but since he was driving for hours that day, I dragged him out for a little neighborhood stroll to stretch the drive out of his legs. Now, I live at the edge of a village, so we headed to one of my favorite country road walks. There's no traffic on that road, which was perfect for us since you could safely walk side by side and be socially distant without having to scoot out of the way of passing cars. My friend is a suburban dad living just outside Philadelphia, and he was delighted by the rural forested feel of the walk. We passed the pond with the neighborhood heron. When he saw eggs for sale on the side of the road at two different homes, self-service out of a cooler, he was floored. But the piece de resistance for him was when we got to the house with critters. Now, I don't mean the house with the Dalmatians, though they really do have more than one Dalmatian, just not 101 of them. And I don't mean a house with chickens, of which there are a lot around here, hence more than one opportunity to buy eggs on the same little lonely road. The house I'm talking about has much more than your run-of-the-mill chickens. There were goats at the house. There were ducks. And right there, standing like the mayor of an animal village, was the plumpest turkey this side of Thanksgiving. Like a little kid at the zoo, Ira ogled the animals. He pulled out his phone. Say gobble, he said, and snapped pictures. This was a memory he would preserve. But Ira is a vegetarian, and he wondered exactly what those creatures were for. Well, I told him some people keep goats to take care of the yard. We have some friends who annually rent a set of goats to eat down the big field behind their home. The ducks probably provide eggs. And the turkey, well, maybe he was for Thanksgiving dinner. Ira wasn't thrilled. He really liked the turkey. The turkey was friendly. The turkey even posed nicely for a picture. He seemed more interesting than many people, even more human than some folks I've seen on social media lately, but I digress. After the walk, Ira left with his picture and a touch of turkey worry in his heart. Time passed. Now, I must admit, when Thanksgiving came and went, I was a little nervous the first time I walked down that road. I was concerned about Ira's turkey. I approached the house with trepidation. I saw the other creatures, but I didn't see the turkey. I felt sad for that bird. But as someone who has lived on a farm, I did have some perspective about it. Then, just as I turned to leave, I saw a movement. What I thought was a shadow near a tree was actually the big, nearly human turkey. He was there all along. The turkey turned. His waddle shivered, just like he was waving. Grateful that there was nothing under my neck to waggle, I had to use my hand to wave back. And then as I walked down the road, I sent a critical text 
to my friend. The turkey survived Thanksgiving. He was delighted. But the happiness bubble burst almost immediately as Ira texted back, I wonder if the turkey was meant for a December holiday. Well, that was certainly possible. In the meantime, another walk showed me that the turkey survived the pre-Christmas nor'easter that dumped 16 inches of snow in our neighborhood. I saw him huddled up against the house, sandwiched between the small house porch and the wall of snow in the yard. But that kind of turkey sandwich was perfectly acceptable to Ira. But then the big question came. Did the turkey survive Christmas dinner? My husband's son and I checked it out a couple of days after Christmas. I felt jittery as I approached the house. The goats gambled around the yard as usual, the ducks quacked and flapped, and there, in the middle of it all, sitting tall and stately like the statue at the Lincoln Memorial, was the turkey. Now it was my turn to pull out my phone and take a picture. Look, I texted, look here, the turkey survived Christmas too. And it was right then that I realized something about the avian creature that Ben Franklin thought was more noble than the bald eagle. I realized that this turkey is a symbol, despite expectations, and against all the odds, which you must admit are strongly stacked against turkeys in November and December, Ira's turkey survived. It survived Thanksgiving, it survived a nor'easter, and it survived Christmas. The turkey made it through. So now it's time for us to talk turkey. If a turkey can survive holiday feasts, we can survive the challenges that pandemic life throws at us. We may have to hunker down sometimes like a turkey in the snow, but just like him, we too will emerge from the challenges to stand tall and stately once again. People may even want to take pictures of us too, so we can proudly waggle our waddles if we have them Smile and say, gobble. Dr. Jerry Burns is a storyteller, writer, and educator living in New York's Hudson Valley. You can find her at storycrafters.com. Burns also is an adjunct professor in the Department of Communication at the State University of New York at New Paltz. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Chartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1651.